Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're looking at what Jesus did on Tuesday of the Passion Week in our series, Journey to the Cross. Dr. John Newfeld will take us back to the great controversy that Jesus stirred up with the leaders of Israel in his message entitled, The Journey Demands a Commitment to Truth. Some of you may remember the first Star Wars trilogy. I know, I know, it was silly and unscientific, and it had rotten theology. And furthermore, Princess Leah had very bad hair. But if you can get by all that, it was very popular. It was a trilogy of movies. The first was entitled Star Wars, and it featured rebel freedom fighters who blew up the evil empire's Death Star. And the second movie was called The Empire Strikes Back. That's because evil men do not sit idly by when their power is being threatened. The Tuesday of Passion Week could also be called The Empire Strikes Back. By Tuesday, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders of Israel had decided this cannot go on. Jesus' presence at the Passover was so overwhelming, so strong, and so destabilizing to their control, they decided they must stop him immediately. But one could not simply arrest him. That might lead to a riot they so feared. And so they decided they will publicly discredit him. They will make him look foolish in front of the people, and after that, they will drive a wedge between him and the people, and then they can safely arrest him and kill him. And this attempt to manipulate Jesus and discredit him will take place on Tuesday. This will be a day of breathtaking spectacle. For Jesus, the day begins as was now the custom during this week. He has spent the night at Bethany, and in the morning, he takes his disciples on that three-kilometer journey back to Jerusalem. On the way, no doubt he is on the Mount of Olives, they come upon the fig tree that he had cursed on the previous morning. By now it's withered to the roots. Peter is the one who notices it first and says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. I imagine they all stop here and on the spot, Jesus has something to say that, unfortunately, many people have misunderstood. Jesus said, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. That statement has led some to argue that Christians can claim anything they want. If they claim it in faith, it will be done. Even mountains can be thrown into the ocean. Now look, there are plenty of passages in the Bible on prayer where we are told to ask God whatever we wish, and it will be done. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. I notice we are promised when we ask within the revealed will of God, that we as believers are given what I would call stunning promises. God stands ready to intervene on our behalf if we will but come to him in faith. But that's not what I mean when I say that Jesus has been misunderstood in what he said while the disciples were observing the withered fig tree. I mean, Jesus has been misunderstood wherever there is a teaching that goes something like this. Speak to the mountains in your life and they'll be removed. You know, behind this teaching is the very bad idea of reinterpreting what is meant by the word faith. In the Bible, faith is confident trust in God, that God will both act for his glory and for our long-term good. Now, with this attitude, we go to him with humble prayer requests, yet bold assurance. But for some, the so-called faith teachers, faith is not trust in God. 
Instead, for them, the definition of faith looks more like the force in the Star Wars series. Faith for them is a force that pervades the universe, and when you get a hold of this power source, we can command mountains and they will obey us. So we don't speak to God, we simply speak to the mountain, and faith and not God moves the mountain. So please notice what Jesus actually said on that Tuesday morning. Did you notice he didn't tell his disciples, if you have faith, you can go around commanding any old mountain to do something, and it will be thrown into the sea. He didn't say any mountain. He was amazingly particular. He said this mountain clearly has a very specific mountain in view. I might even argue he was probably at that moment even pointing at the mountain he was referring to. So which mountain does he have in mind? Now, if you listened to me yesterday, you'll remember that I said the cursing of the fig tree was symbolic of Jesus cursing the temple. That fig tree stood on the Mount of Olives where Jesus and his disciples were in full view of the temple. Furthermore, as they come back to the fig tree on Tuesday morning, they're again looking from the Mount of Olives down the steep descent into the Kidron Valley, then up the steep ascent into Jerusalem with the temple occupying the highest ground in Jerusalem, ground that was often called the Temple Mount. So, when Jesus said, if anyone says to this mountain, he's referring to the Temple Mount. If anyone says to this temple mount, be removed and cast into the sea, I hope you understand what Jesus is saying here. He is saying, and I am the anyone who is saying it and does not doubt in his heart, for Jesus does not doubt for a moment that what he says comes directly from the predetermined plan of the Father. That's why he does not doubt. And with this clear view of what the Father has already planned, I am now announcing this temple will be removed and thrown into the sea. And as we noticed yesterday, it was less than 40 years later that the Roman army would surround that temple and burn it to the ground. And for 2,000 years, no temple has been permitted to stand there. Jesus prophesied it, and it came to be. Now, I'm not sure the disciples got any of that. Now, that very evening, as Jesus was leading his disciples back out of the city, they would say to him, look, Lord, how lovely and how beautiful is this temple. And Jesus would have to repeat himself. Do you see all this? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. But these statements seem impossible to them. It seems so unlikely. Doesn't the temple have a major role and a place to play in the kingdom to come? And of course, the answer to that would have been yes. But at this moment, Jesus knows why he has come to this Passover. His coming marks the turning point of Israel's history, the turning point of the temple sacrifices, the turning point in understanding of how one can approach God. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to be the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, something that an endless river of sacrifices of sheep and goats could never accomplish. But the disciples don't understand. And so Jesus and the twelve leave the living parable of the withered fig tree standing on the Mount of Olives and make their way back into Jerusalem, where the enemies of Jesus have been preparing to discredit him. From their vantage point, it is not the temple that is at risk. It is Jesus himself who is at risk. The temple they think will never be torn down, but they will tear down this upstart prophet from Galilee who makes himself out as if he were the Messiah. But Jesus knows what's waiting for him. No sooner has he entered the temple that the chief priests and the elders of Israel are standing there waiting and ready. They confront him. 
on Sunday. You almost caused a riot in this city by coming in on a donkey, attempting to fulfill the prophecy found in Zechariah 9.9. And on Monday, you threw the money changers out of the temple, and who knows why you've come here today. We're the elders of Israel, and we, as elders, have been given the authority to direct the Passover celebration. And you are wrecking what is under our authority. Who gave you the authority to do what you've been doing? Ah, it looks like they have him. He's just a troublemaker, and they will expose that soon enough. What makes all of this so evil is that a little more than a year into his ministry, the elders of Israel argued that Christ's authority came from Beelzebub, the prince of demons. They said he has authority to do miracles because that authority came from Satan. Now, they don't repeat the charge here. That would be too inflammatory. I suspect that they had a secret strategy meeting the night before and had agreed to try to tone the language down. Instead of making a charge against him, let's make him look silly. When he says he has God's authority, let's ask him if this is the same God who established the temple and the leadership in the temple. They think they have him in their sights and they are prepared. But Jesus was ready for them, and without hesitation, he answers, I'll ask you a question, and if you answer it, then I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. A moment's pause. What to say now? But before they can answer, Jesus carries on. Here's my question to you. John the Baptist, when he baptized, was his authority from heaven or from men? Wow, that got everyone's attention. This was an amazing sore spot. Many of the people watching this interchange had gone to hear John preach, and many had been baptized by John, and they still basked in the glow of that ministry. He changed their lives, and none of these elders of Israel had changed their lives. And that's what the elders of Israel hated most about John. The crowd in the temple grew deathly quiet, and then almost comically, the elders of Israel caucused. If we say John's authority came from heaven, he will ask us why we resisted his authority and refused his ministry. But if we say it came from men, this crowd will turn against us in a second, given the passions that Jesus has already excited this Passover, they might even stone us. Strange, isn't it? How quickly matters changed. The elders of Israel thought they had Jesus. In less than a minute, he had them. And so they respond, we don't know by what authority he did this. And Jesus is all over that one. Then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing this. And when we come back, we're going to see what that leads to. As we unpack this pivotal moment in Jesus last week, we begin to understand why it was so important that he confronted the elders with such boldness and intent in the days leading up to the cross. We also see Jesus' emphasis on the fact that he was coming to replace the very temple itself through what he accomplished on the cross, though even his own disciples did not understand this yet. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will explain more about what Jesus said in his direct attack on the rulers of Israel. It's official. Truth in Life magazine is now public. This is our brand new bi-monthly magazine delivered to households right across Canada. Truth in Life focuses on making the Bible come to life through the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, as well as other Canadian guest pastors and authors, as well as offering articles designed to connect you in your daily journey with Jesus. Enjoy articles with Phil Calloway, In Doubt's young adult ministry leader Isaac Dagno, and inside information about all of the ministry coming and goings of Back to the Bible Canada. There's something for everyone in truth and life. So sign up for your free subscription today. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or go to backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. 
after the conflict over authority. Rather than wait for the next question, Jesus seizes the initiative he has gained. He has three parables. Each one is a parable against the elders or the rulers of Israel. And each one is told while the chief priests and elders are there. The first parable is a parable of two sons. The first refused to obey his father, then changed his mind and did what his father commanded. The second promised to obey his father and then didn't. What did that parable mean? Jesus made it plain. The elders of Israel had promised to obey God and didn't. And then he said to them, the prostitutes and the tax collectors who refused the father's command but have repented, they are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. Then the second parable, the parable of the tenants. There was a master who owned a vineyard, and there were tenants who leased the vineyard from him. Before it was leased, the master had invested a great deal to make the vineyard both beautiful and immensely profitable. So the tenants had quite a deal, but when the time came to pay rent, they refused. So the master sent some of his servants to get the rent, and the tenants beat some up and killed others. In the end, the master sent his own son. The tenant said, the master slipped up. This is the heir to his vineyard. If we kill him, his vineyard will be ours forever. Now, this was not hard to understand. The master's servants are the prophets of old who denounced Israel for their sin. Later, Stephen would say, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And who is the son? Well, it's Jesus. And so Jesus asks the question to the crowds gathered to see this spectacle of Jesus against the elders of Israel. What will the owner of that vineyard do? And someone shouted out, he will put the tenants to death and lease out the vineyard to others. Yes, indeed, he will. Now a long pause. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruit. My, oh, my. Luke says someone actually shouted out, surely not. And Jesus said, then what do you think Psalm 118 verse 22 means? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he adds, when anyone stumbles on this stone, he will be broken to pieces. And when this stone falls on anyone, he will be utterly crushed. He meant, if you stumble over me, it will be your undoing. Wow, if looks could only kill, Jesus would have died on the spot. Pure hatred was in the eyes of the elders, but before they could speak, he had yet one more parable. The third and last parable is the parable of the wedding feast. A king invites guests to come to the wedding of his son. The guests refuse to come and then become violent. Enraged, the king sends in his armies, destroys the murderers, and burns down their city. So this shocking development goes so far beyond the normal wedding, it gets everyone's attention. You leaders of Israel will be bound to be cast into outer darkness. Are you paying attention? For those of you who are looking for a Jesus who is only gentle and kind and endlessly patient, this presents us with quite a picture, doesn't it? It's Jesus utterly and completely condemning the lies and the hypocrisy of the elders of Israel. And with that, As we say in Canada, the gloves are off. The fight has begun. How desperately they want to trap him. So out come questions that they had planned the night before. Is it legal to pay taxes to Caesar? What happens in the resurrection to a woman who has been a widow seven times? Which is the greatest command? And with each question that seemed so brilliant in their minds the night before is answered with such ease. The one who not only knows the word, but is the word made flesh. The adulation of the crowd only grows, and the hatred of the elders is now seen for what it is. And then having answered them all, Jesus turns to the crowd that is watching and says, What seems amazing to many of us 
He says, the Pharisees and the scribes, they are to teach the law of Moses. So you want to do exactly what they tell you to do. What? What did he just say? Yes, when the teachers of the law actually teach the law and explain the law, you should do what they say. And then he says, but don't live like them. Now then comes the most scathing denunciation in the entire Bible. Let's see if we can follow this. First, he says, the elders of Israel make a show of their own importance and will not identify themselves with the people. As an example, they make their phylacteries long. These were leather cases containing scripture verses that came with a leather strap, which was wrapped around either the arm or the head to show how spiritual they were. The practice was to make large showy ones so everyone could see them. These men loved places of honor and showy titles. The second denunciation is that they make so many rules, no one can enter the kingdom under them. And the third denunciation is their contradictory teaching and their practice of ignoring the weighty matters of the law. And to this, Jesus gives them titles. So you like titles. Try this. Hypocrites, blind guides, blind fools, whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you are full of dead men's bones guilty of the blood of innocent men. You may remember, as I began this series on Jesus' week of passion, that I began by saying that Jesus was much like a conductor of an orchestra. He's directing the orchestra. His hand and movement direct what will happen. He is fully in charge. When Jesus denounced the Sadducees, Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, these elders of Israel, it is not that his temper had gotten the better of him. And that he said things that he wished he could have taken back, but once they were said, created such a serious rift between him and them that there was no healing of it. No, that's not it. Jesus intends to expose something very crucial. These men are murderers, and Jesus will expose them as that. They seek to kill him when no one is watching, but he will force them to do that while everyone is watching. Indeed, what they did in murdering Jesus was not only known in Israel. Here we are 2,000 years later, and the world knows exactly what they've done. That was Jesus' intention. And so it becomes overwhelmingly clear why Jesus denounced the temple, its practices, and its corrupt leadership. The religious center of Israel's life was a group of killers. Please understand that I'm not saying that the Jewish people are Christ killers, but I'm saying that 2,000 years ago, the elders of Israel were. And how does Christ respond to this? Well, we leave Jesus on Tuesday afternoon towards evening after a day filled with controversy and hatred and see tears of sorrow coursing down his cheeks. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones those sent by God. And then speaking as their king, he says, How often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you will not have it. And then in the midst of sorrow of that moment, he utters words of cursing that sound very familiar to the beginning of that day as he spoke of the temple mount being thrown into the sea. He says, Your house is left to you desolate. But just when we think it is hopeless, he utters, words of incredible, audacious, bold, and daring hope. He says, you will see me again, but you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and until you say, we welcome you, Jesus, as our long-expected king. See, from Jesus, we know that time will yet come. There is a day coming when, indeed, we look forward to, as Paul says, the salvation of Israel. 
There was a time, of course, when we look forward to the change of heart and attitudes of the people of God who longed for and expected their Messiah and yet rejected him. And yet the Messiah will yet hold out his hands of welcome to them. He will come and they will indeed say, we welcome you as our long-expected king. Heavenly Father, we pray as we've come to the end of this day of ministry. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have promised great things to your people, but you've also promised great things to us, all of us who hope in the name of Christ. Heavenly Father, we ask, make us so that we welcome Christ at all times. Help us not to be like the rulers of Israel who will say words of peace towards you with their mouth, but reject you in our hearts. Help us rather, O Lord God, to accept you and welcome you as our long-expected King. In his name we pray, amen. John, another great message and a great opportunity to consider uh, the role of the elders and what they played. And and I was thinking, Do we see that same type of behavior today? People sort of setting themselves up as being above Christ, distracting us from truth, distracting us with false teaching. The real question always is, who is the king? And I suppose for us who are on this side of the Jesus event, we are sometimes resisting Jesus because we find his words difficult. So Jesus gives us a command, or Jesus demands something of our lives, or Jesus calls us to account for the behaviors that we've had that have fallen short of what he wants, and we might respond in the same way. Um, I, I think the, the word is not only for us in the Christian community, but the, world is, the word is for the entire world. I mean, Jesus demands obedience of the whole world. He is actually king of the whole world, and any prime minister or any king that will not fall and submit to him, in the end will also answer to him. That's who Jesus pretends to be. Well, and I suppose as we look at that, we recognize a God who is true to his word, a God that desires the very best and the very most of us. And uh, we look forward to uh, continuing this week as we look further in Journey to the Cross. Thanks, John. And uh, join us again tomorrow for more of Back to the Bible Canada. The passion of Jesus is unmistakable here. It isn't the gentle, meek Jesus that is often portrayed. This is the king uncovering deceit, evil, and hypocrisy at the very core of Israel's religious and cultural system. I hope that today's teaching has helped you understand more fully the nature of Christ, who demands that the truth be proclaimed whatever the cost. Join us tomorrow on our last program, concluding week one of the Journey of the Cross, as Dr. Neufeld paints a picture of what Christ was doing on Tuesday evening of the Passion Week. At Back to the Bible Canada, we're committed to providing solid biblical teaching every week so that we can build up and encourage believers in their walk with Christ. This month, you can purchase your own copy of this great Easter series, Journey to the Cross, by Dr. John Newfeld. Available for just $19, which includes shipping and handling, Journey to the Cross is a wonderful resource filled with rich insights on what Jesus taught and did on his final week on earth. As we survey all four gospel accounts, this series uncovers and details the events of Jesus' life from Palm Sunday to the cross and his triumphant resurrection. Call us today to order Journey to the Cross at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.